you have a copy of God's Word available to you, the book of Jeremiah, we are going to review and examine from chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 4. And some of you just got very nervous about the length of the sermon. Well, I'm nervous too. We shall not read the entirety of this text. I direct your attention to the third chapter, beginning at verse 6. Jeremiah 3, beginning at verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the harlot or the whore? And I thought, after she's done all this, she'll return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I'd sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Come down now to verse 11. The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you've not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and bring you to Zion. Now, pay attention now, verse 15. And I'll give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you've multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, I shall no more say, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. This is the word of our great God. Let's pray. Our Father, do for us now what only you can by the power of your Spirit. Grant to us repentance as we need to repent. Grant to us faith united with that repentance that we would trust you. Let us see this word rightly this day. May we honor you, the ever loyal, ever faithful Lord. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
sarcasm. The Oxford Dictionary definition, the use of irony to mock or convey contempt. I must confess my tendencies in this particular area may be less godly than at other times. But I'd also push back on those who say there's no place in the Christian life for sarcasm. All you have to do is read the Old Testament prophets, and you know that sarcasm was part and parcel of what they used. Jeremiah, in particular, under the inspiration of the Spirit, uses it with powerful effect. Now, as we look back to this prophet, this Jeremiah, from around 620 to 580 or so B.C. How are we as New Covenant believers to look back to these things? See, that is inevitably the question when you try to do biblical interpretation and you look back at the Old Testament. We must not, in fact, we cannot rightly look at the Old Testament without looking through an empty tomb and past a cross and a cradle. If we do that, we're likely going to misunderstand what the text is actually telling us. That's not to say the Old Testament doesn't have use. It does. In fact, Paul will argue in 1 Corinthians 10, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by servants, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That kind of catches the big list, doesn't it? Grumblers, testers, unfaithful. That's what he says. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. My brothers and sisters, regardless of how you view end times, don't miss that statement. He says of himself, these Corinthian believers, upon you the end of the ages has come. Mm. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There are going to be a number of reminders of our sins as we go through the book of Jeremiah. Past sins, current struggles, sins, sins among those who aren't Christians. This may be the place of your conviction, your conversion, your salvation. Sins of those of us who are Christians, Lord willing, leads to our repentance. And if we've already repented for thanksgiving, the, for the gracious salvation of our God. These things are written for our good. 
that leads you to repentance and the comfort of the grace of God. What we look at this morning in these three chapters, or two chapters and a piece, I should say, is a collection of prophecies. They appear to be, in fact, they are said to be early in his ministry. Chapter 3, verse 6, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah. So this is early in Jeremiah's ministry. Josiah is doing everything he can to bring, his, bring Judah excuse me, back from the brink of judgment for their repentance and their faithfulness. And he's doing all that he possibly can do. And yet the Lord looks ahead and sees where this is ultimately going. And he calls through Jeremiah for them to take seriously what it means to be the people of God. You see, we tend to somehow convince ourselves that faithfulness to the Lord is in some sense optional. That the Lord isn't all that serious about our loyalty. My friends, that is not what the text tells us. Our loyal Lord, when I say loyal, I mean faithful, loyal to us, will not tolerate spiritual treachery. Four broad considerations. And you're welcome to go back through the text and see if I've found these in the right places. I hope I have. I think I have. First that stands out is the Lord's consistent kindness. Now, this is something I think everybody struggles with to a greater or lesser degree as a Christian. Is the Lord always kind? Now, we know the right answer to that, but we're not sure we live the right answer to that. We, we want to say yes, but there are times we're not sure. And part of the reminder of Jeremiah is that the Lord is consistently gracious and kind. It shows up, I think, in three major ways through this text. Back in chapter 2 at verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, that you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. He begins with this gracious act, his rescue of them from Egypt. You can never overestimate how desperately important this was in the history of Israel, Judah, their thinking. The Exodus was definitional to their identity. Of all the great feasts and gatherings, certainly Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, was essential. But my friends, I don't think you can say that that was any more essential in their minds and thinking than the celebration of Passover, their deliverance by the Lord. Keep in mind, as you watch the biblical history unfold, you move from a man, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, to the next pair, Isaac and Rebekah, and then to that absolutely messed up situation with Jacob 
and his father-in-law, Laban. Playing a game of spin the bride, as it were, you know. Look at who's it come up with. Well, Leah. Well, that's not what I worked for. Well, I'll tell you what. We can't help that. She's yours, too. But if you want Rachel, just need seven more years of labor out of you, son. I got a feeling nobody ever came out on top when Laban was involved in the deal. Now, at the end, Jacob does very well. But I'm saying this to say, as you watch what transpires here, you eventually get the family up to the 12, what we know as the 12 tribes of Israel. But by the time they go down into Egypt because of famine and the care for them by Joseph, there's only about 70 of them all together. And then you don't hear anything until Exodus. And Exodus opens with, well, everything was good until a Pharaoh came up who did not know Joseph. And this group of people who had come as free men, free women, into Egypt find themselves subjugated. And it's no longer a family or even an extended family. It is literally a nation in 400 years. And that nation because of the promise of God, is delivered. That deliverance included the ten plagues on Egypt, the water turned to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock death, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and finally the death of the firstborn, the Passover. This gracious beginning of a relationship to Israel as a nation continued to be both their identity and the Lord's reminder to them of his great love. My friends, understand, the Lord takes with great seriousness his acts of salvation. As he delivers Israel out of Egypt, Christian, he has delivered you from the dominion of sin by the person, the living and dying and resurrection of his Son. There's no such thing as making too much of what Christ has done. Well, how else did the Lord show his kindness? Well, they gave him a land. Chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 19. He not only delivers them from bondage, he gives them a place, a home. Just as he had promised Abraham, they're granted the land of Israel, the land which was described as flowing with milk and honey, the land that would eventually include the site, the city known as Jerusalem, the capital, the location of the temple. He gave them a home. They had been sojourners. They had been visitors, captives in Egypt. They come out and they get a land that's their own. His kindness also seen in his preservation of Judah, now, Israel had acted foolishly and wickedly, and I remind you, the division between northern kingdom and southern kingdom happens right after Solomon's death, for his son Rehoboam ruled unwisely, and it leads to the split of the kingdom. And so you have a north-south division, to the north Israel, to the south Judah, to the north the Samaria, Samaria as the capital, to the south Jerusalem as the capital. And because Israel was led out that way by Jeroboam, he also created gods for them to worship. It wouldn't do to have the folks in the north running down to the south to visit Jerusalem and worship. So they created their own cultists, their own views of how to deal with God. And it was syncretism. It was gathering all sorts of gods together. 
And Israel is the first to fall. But you see, that should have been a lesson for Judah. They're sitting there right next to what's going on. Assyria comes down and wipes out the northern kingdom. But they still did not learn. Friend, let me say it to you this way, as bluntly and plainly as I know how. The Lord may, non-Christian, be getting your attention by showing you how close death can be to you, how dangerous life can actually be, how fragile we actually are. Don't treat that with contempt. Now the Lord's kindness should lead us to obedience. But I'll have you consider next the people's consistent sin. The Lord's consistently kind, but here was the consistency of their sinfulness. One brother put it this way. He hears his people protesting their innocence. You'll read that in this text. But wants them instead to confess their guilt. He, he doesn't have, he's not finding fault with Josiah, who's doing all that a king can do by way of reform and the change of structures, but the prophet's task, the preaching of repentance and changing of hearts, he's appointed to Jeremiah. There's still a way open for the nation, too, to turn from its sins. The die's not yet cast. Punishment is not yet inevitable. It's prophecies of warning rather than doom that Jeremiah is trying to convey to his own and Josiah's generation. So what did they do? Well, here's the first one, and this comes across in chapter 2, verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's ancient people were very prone forgetting. And in their forgetting, remember folks, the impetus to worship is part of the human condition. You don't escape this. You merely do substitute objects. I will declare to you, my friend, even secularists, full-blown atheists, worship, even if it's at the altar of their own miserable little thinking and miserable little lives. Spurgeon put it this way, other nations were faithful to their blocks of wood and of stone and adhered as closely to their graven images as though they'd really helped them or could in the future deliver them. Only the nation which avowed its belief in the true God forsook its God. And the fountain of living water to hew out for itself broken cisterns which could hold no water. You catch the imagery, right? The Lord says to his people, I'm the fountain of living water. Drink from me. Nah, 
I'm going to go build, build my own cistern. I'm going to dig a hole in the ground and line it up with rock, and it's near a spring, and it's going to rain, and everything will be fine. I'll have water. But the cisterns held no water. Thomas Boston, the old Puritan, said, God in Christ is the fountain all sufficient in himself. All the creatures are but cisterns. If there's no water brought into them from heaven or from the spring, they are dry. Only one true fountain. Christ. You know, that gives, honestly, I think about this, I think it gives dramatically deeper meaning to Jesus' words. John chapter 4, woman with the well. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you'd have asked of him and he would have given you Remember the two words? Living water. Further in that same gospel, chapter 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In fact, my friends, I believe that the miracle at Cana of Galilee at the wedding is in a sense a reflection of this. You remember the story, they're out of wine. Mary goes to Jesus, they're out of wine. And you have that really fascinating little exchange between the two of them where she turns around and says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And there's water jars, right? For Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, six of them, fill them with water. And what does he do? He converts it, he changes it into wine right so i do think that imagery is tied to this he's showing them i am the one that's the source not just water <laughs> i am good for your heart for your soul i give you great wealth more than stone jars of water i'll give you my blood my life all that i am they were unfaithful the descriptions here are as painful as they are vivid. Chapter 2, verse 23, how can you say I'm not unclean? I've not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Look at what you've done. The first comparison, a restless young camel running here and there. Now, the picture here is a wild camel, young. He doesn't know what to do with himself, so he runs this direction, then he runs that direction, then he runs this direction. I've had dogs like that. No purpose in anything they're doing, just gadding about. Now the next one. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? Oh my word. You understand how blunt some of this is? Can I let you on a little hint, folks? You wonder how to talk to your children about issues of sexuality and things like that. Basically, if you read the Bible to them, it's coming up. You're going to have to talk about it at some point. His people no longer seek him. They've utterly forsaken him. They don't think they've sinned, but their wicked compromises were infidelity. God didn't leave his people. They dumped him. They were idolaters. The idolatries of the day, and I, I love how Jeremiah talks about stick and stone, verse 27, who say to a chapter 2, verse 27, who say to a tree, you are my father. 
and to a stone you gave me birth. For they turned their back to me and not their face. Now I know we look at that and say, well, obviously idolatry is a problem for them. It's not so much a problem for our day. My friend, I say it again. We are caught in some version of worship. The idolatries of our own day include making up God who is intellectually acceptable to us, making up a God who is as morally questionable as we are, making up a God who's either safely removed or ignorable, or a God who is so morally compromised that he supports our immorality. In the United States, quoting from Andrew Dearman, churches are often invited, tempted, to make alliances to gain, for gain or influence. Conservative churches may unite with a Republican or a politically conservative figure, and more liberal churches with a Democrat or a politically liberal figure. Thus, in political campaigns, collections are taken up in congregations. The question here is who's using whom? The answer may not be simple or obvious, but it's important to ask the questions of primary identity and covenant loyalty. Bill Ryken did this, and I think this is brilliant. Politics is a broken cistern. Let me say that again. Politics is a broken cistern. When Christians trust in political solutions to save the nation, they bring judgment on themselves. Now, I know I just upset some of you, and I'm actually thankful. Another brother points out in our time, technology and the individual do-it-yourself spirituality are two seductions facing Western Christians. I've never heard that said better. Technology, we like our gadgets, and individual do-it-yourself spirituality. When his people forsake him, they're like a prostitute on the street corner waiting for some action. That's the imagery. So the Lord's been kind, and you've been disobedient. What next? Third major theme, the call to return. Chapter 3, look at verse 11. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel, shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. He goes along speaking, verse 12, return, faithless Israel. Verse 14, return, O faithless children. The call here over and over again, chapter 3, verse 22, return, O faithless sons. Chapter 4, verse 1, to me you should return. There's a word that appears repeatedly in these chapters that's translated alternately turn or return. The Lord always is calling for us to either turn or return. Turn is if you've never repented, you've never believed. This, my friend, is the Lord's call to you. If you're not a Christian, His call is for your repentance. Turn. 
Turn from yourself, turn from your wicked ways, turn from whatever it is that is occupying your mind and your heart and leading you to damnation. Turn. To believers who wander, return. Yes, we must turn or die in our sins. But this turning isn't merely a matter in our own hands. God has purpose. God has power. God saves sinners. And God still saves saints. I know some of you say, well, you don't know what I've done here. You don't know how mad I failed. I'm indifferent. Not because I don't care, but because I would never give you permission to make your sin more powerful than the grace of an almighty God. Christian, hear me. The blessedness of the new covenant is that he will never Never leave you nor forsake you. Well, I don't feel anything. He will never leave you. The accuser's crushing me. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Hear this, when God calls you to return to Him, He calls you to turn away from sin. Returning to God's embrace means turning your back on all your other lovers, all your other things that you've been hanging on to. So not only do we consider the consistent kindness of the Lord and the people's consistent sin and this call to return, finally, what's enough, what's enough motivator? What's enough to get us moving? Now, I've heard some preachers preach this text like basically, get up, get over it, do something, you've got to get on with it. And I agree. But my friend, when when you're weary, when you're hurting, the mere command may not be enough. Especially if you feel weak. And let you in a little secret here. You know why you feel weak? Because you are. We don't like making peace with that, right? Look at chapter 3, the promise of a new day at verse 15. We read this earlier as we were beginning. I'll give you shepherds after my own heart. First, he says, a promise. I'll give you godly shepherds. It's a sad thing, but a holy calling doesn't necessarily mean a holy man. And my brothers and sisters, we've got to be careful about making heroes out of those who would preach and teach and lead. And I, I, please know, I don't mind for a bit. I love to listen to John Piper. Good on you. I want to listen to Alistair Begg. I do, basically all day, every day. If I could, I'd just listen to Alistair, except I I hear things, and then I start trying to sound Scottish. Just sounds weird coming out of the hillbilly's mouth, I'm just saying. Never works out quite right. 
John McCarthy. I go down the list, folks. Francis Chan, you fill in the blank. David Platt, whoever it is, Vody Bauckham, I'm just saying. You can, but can I let you in on a little secret here about all that? Uh, be careful that doesn't turn into some version of idolatry. And also bear in mind, bear in mind that none of those people are going to come to your house and visit you if you need help. And they're going to show up at the hospital when you're sick and they sure are not doing your funeral. My friend, we ought to be thankful that the Lord promises godly shepherds. In fact, he warns in fact, chapter 2, verse 8, this is what he says, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Part of God's promise is he grants under the terms of the new covenant, godly leadership. Not only that promise, but the promise of a glorious presence. Now, I don't know how in 50 plus years of reading the Bible, I missed this. But I did. There in the third chapter at verse 16. And when you've multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Now, let me give you a little hint here. They had turned the ark of the covenant into a kind of talisman that somehow the mere presence of the golden box, the ark of the covenant, meant God had to be with them all the time and they could use the ark of the covenant to get God to do things. And they would brag, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant. In fact, Jeremiah will say that. They'll repeat it three or four times. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He said, don't say that. You count the Ark more important than the Lord who commanded you to make the Ark. And the Ark itself is not the source of the presence and power of God. It shall, and now notice this. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. We, we like having the ark. We like having the visible representation. Why is that to be? Because as the law is given through Moses, grace and truth came with Jesus. You see, folks, Jesus is better than the ark of the covenant. How did touching the ark work out how did touching Jesus work out the glorious presence of God in the person of his son and further the gathering of his people in those days verse 18 
The house of Judah will join the house of Israel together. They'll come from the land of the north to the land I gave your father. Certainly this is fulfilled in the sense that by the time Christ comes, Israel and Judah have returned from captivity. They're all in one nation. But even then, they were terribly divided. Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, Zealots, and Essenes. They didn't get along with one another. But my friend, do you see that in the terms of the new covenant, the fulfillment is larger than this? John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. Earlier you talked about giving them shepherds, right? Godly, wise shepherds after my own heart. Jesus goes on to say, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must also bring them and they'll listen to my voice. There'll be one flock, one shepherd. Folks, do you understand that those few verses, 15 through 18, right there in chapter 3, are anticipatory of what comes in the 31st chapter of Jeremiah. The gloriously encouraging picture of the new covenant. Now I think about this. Let's see if I can help you do a little move forward in application. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And here's the promise. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, do we see this? Do you recognize this? Acts chapter 1. They're gathered for prayer. Acts chapter 2, they're still gathered for prayer. And when they're praying, the Spirit of God comes down, and suddenly you have all these Jewish pilgrims who are from all the nations of the known world. They're scattered everywhere. They are hearing the praises of God in their native language, while the apostles and those disciples, 120, had no idea how to speak those languages but we're granted the power by that overwhelming work of the Spirit of God. You ever wonder how the church ended up some places? Pentecost. But that's not the only thing. I read a little further and I find, of all things, Philip goes up among the Samaritans. Now, you do remember John 4, right? And the note that John makes, now the Jews and Samaritans don't have any friendly dealings with one another. That's a mild way of saying they hate each other's guts. They loathed one another. And yet through the preaching of Philip and then the apostles coming, the Lord saves a great number of the Samaritans. Hmm, this thing getting weird. Those to be... Israel, now it's Israel and Samaria. Well, okay, they're kind of distant cousins. We hate them, but they're kind of like us, sort of. And then Acts chapter 10. Cornelius and Peter 
I won't go through that whole thing, folks, but if you cannot for a moment capture what a struggle it was for Peter to do what he did, you're really missing out. He actually went into a Gentile's house. A good Jew never did that. And even then, he's like, okay, uh, what do you want? Why am I here? Right? Well, this angel told me, oh, well, I see the Lord's no respecter of persons. I guess I should tell you the good news about Jesus. And he does. And uh, there's a part of me that wonders if Peter's thinking to himself, okay, I've got to tell him the gospel, but Lord, what are you doing here? How do I handle this? And he doesn't get to handle it because the Lord pours out his spirit and suddenly these Gentiles have come to faith and they're manifesting by the power of the spirit this same gift of unknown languages. And he looks at them and says, wow, uh, we got we to baptize them. They got the Holy Spirit same way we did. We got to baptize them. What is going on? The Lord is fulfilling the promise to Jeremiah, to his people. Gathering. Gathering. See, folks, that's why racial identity as a rubric for how we do church is wicked beyond words. It's just foolishness. Heaven's going to be filled with a lot of people who don't look the least bit like one another. Had remarkably different backgrounds. Might not even have got along that well here. The rest of the book of Acts, the gospel in Thessalonica, Philippi, Ephesus, you go down the list, finally getting Paul to Rome. <laughs> Now what should we do with this? Let me see if I can gather this up for you. My friend, if you're not a Christian, don't believe for a moment. You can just simply ignore the Lord. You may say you're not disloyal because you've never believed, but my friend, you eat the food he provides, you breathe his air. You use the mind and the gifts he's granted you. Do you think you're going to escape the God who gave you all this and you treat him with contempt? Christian who's wandered, come back. Turn around. He's not going to let you go. You're a sheep. Okay? You're not a goat. You're a sheep. Quote a brother I heard years ago, you might have bought a goat coat, but he's going to strip you of it. Turn around. Let this be your hope, my friends. He's been kind to you. He's shown grace to you. And he's not going to leave you in your sin. In fact, he may let you struggle to help cure you. Run to him as hard as you know how. Trust him. 
trapped. Treachery is dangerous. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. Lord, we hear this as your instruction to us, your exhortation to us. Lord, we are so easily distracted by stuff. We are so easily enamored of things we think we can control and have an effect. Oh, Lord, we are so often foolish. So our prayer today, Lord, first, for those among us who don't know Jesus, our prayer is that today they've come in repentance and faith and have been saved, have been rescued. And for those of us who are yours, Lord, may we never take for granted that you have rescued us that you found us in our sin and you overcame our resistance and you regenerated us and you have declared us righteous solely for what Christ has done for us. And you are in the process of sanctifying us. Lord, may we be brought to consistent and humble, faithful endurance to follow you. And may our joy be anchored in who you are, what you've done, what you've promised. For it is in Jesus' name we do pray now. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this hymn in response to the word.